since retiring and joined the, joining the small band of uh, retired ministers here, uh, Judy and I have been part of the congregation now for three years and we've enjoyed the fellowship that we have shared and the different role model simply being part of a congregation rather than doing what I'm doing this morning. Although it is good still to be found useful once or twice and I give thanks to God for that. Uh, Judy and I have served churches in both New South Wales and Victoria over 40 years. Uh, we came back from our honeymoon. I was the ripe old age of 24, Judy 21. She'd graduated from the youth group to being a pastor's wife and we started the week after we got back at Waverley, Bondi Junction in Sydney and uh, we came back to Victoria where I'd originally come from and served the churches uh, here the last 30 years, three churches in Lilydale, uh, all over this side of town, or at least uh, around about this area, uh, Lilydale, uh, Baronia and uh, Bulleen. It's good to share with you this morning and to open the Word of God together. So let's do that, taking the scripture reading from uh, Luke chapter 7 and uh, reading from uh, verses, uh, I'm not sure, 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 from the NIV. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. When a woman, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wipe his feet with her, with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled both debts. Now which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had had the greater debt cancelled. You'll judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are probably half a different ways that one could approach a text like this. None of them would be right or wrong, they would simply be different. Different structures of study, sermons, different points that one might like to draw out of the passage. I've chosen this morning to do what might be titled a narrative sermon. It's going to require filling in the gaps that Luke hasn't provided. What was the woman doing there? What motivated her? How did she gain entry? What was Simon up to? Why did Jesus turn up? What were they thinking? What were they feeling? Now, as it happens, we know a fair bit about architecture in the ancient world, the time of Jesus. We have a fair idea of the layout of Simon's house. I'll be using that. We have a reasonable amount of knowledge about how a woman such as this might gain the reputation that she had and fall into the lifestyle that she had lived. I'm not going to pretend that the gaps that I fill in have the authority of Scripture themselves, although they are more than wild guesses and just stabs in the dark. Besides that, even though 2,000 years have come and gone since these events took place, and even though the world is a vastly different place, people are still the same. Culture might shape and pressure people into certain ways of behaving, but inwardly we still have the same hopes and the same dreams. We still live under the same sun on the same earth, and we are still made in the image, male and female, of God himself. So then I trust you will excuse my additions to the text. If you want to have a go at me afterwards because of it, I have a new cochlear implant, I'll simply disconnect it. <laughs> Works wonders. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, give us keen minds to understand your word. Give us warm hearts that we may be drawn to it. And give us malleable wills that our will might be bent to yours, we ask. May the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be faithful to the scriptures and honourable to you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. She knew that she had absolutely no right to be there. And she also knew that she was on the cusp of being discovered. She had absolutely no idea also what she was going to say. 
After all, she was somewhat notorious in the town. Her face was instantly recognisable. Her story was known. What could she say? She couldn't say, well, I'm a member of the family. That was a joke. She couldn't say, well, I'm a member of the household. I'm on here legitimate business. The whole town knew that the words her business and legitimate didn't exactly go together in the same sentence. Was she a friend of Simon's? <laughs> well, if it was possible at that point in time for a smile to light up her face, that would have done it. She knew from painful experience that if Simon and she met down the street, that Simon would cross on the other side of the road. He would be very, very careful that not even her shadow would fall on him. For after all, he did not want to be defiled by a person who was born for one purpose, one reason only, to stand under the judgment of God. He would not want to be infected as a righteous man by the very antithesis of what he was, a woman and unrighteous. If her shadow did fall on him, he knew that he would need to take a ritual bath just to be clean again. A friend of Simon... Oh no, she would never pull that one off. She wondered to herself exactly how she'd got into this situation. She knew why Simon was there, it was his house. He had a reputation for throwing dinner parties, for collecting celebrities, and he'd certainly collected one in this carpenter from Nazareth, this, this Jesus. She had a fair inkling why Jesus was there. She'd heard the dispute with the Pharisees where they had criticised John for being withdrawn from society and not interacting with anybody. And then they'd criticised Jesus for going to parties and talking to sinners and publicans. She'd heard Jesus' takedown of them, that they were like children at a party, dancing to different tunes and couldn't make up their mind. Hypocrites! He called them. She assumed that Jesus was here because he simply enjoyed a good meal. She could find no other reason and that was probably sufficient. Why was she there? When she was a small girl, she had the same hopes, the same dreams of any other small girl in that village. There was a pathway expected of her and she understood what that pathway was and she would have greeted it with enthusiasm. She was to be a wife, a mother. She was to care for a family. She would have a husband. Well, the Hebrews didn't actually have a word for love. They didn't deal in non-concrete things so much. 
but there was a word, hesed, loving kindness. And she had hoped for a man who would be kind in his love. She knew that life was tough. It was for almost everyone that she knew. She knew it had its surprises, that it could be difficult, but she hadn't realised that it could be so cruel. On the day that she was married, she was handed to another family to care for her. She couldn't anticipate the early separation from her family and the deaths of her parents. Nor could she anticipate the death of her husband. She knew the purpose of the necklace that her parents had given her. The 12 gold coins linked together, worn around the forehead. That in the absence of any public aid was her insurance policy. And so when she was cast by herself, she cashed in some of those coins. If she was careful, she could live a month on one of them, but there were only 12 of them. Finally, somebody in the family, a distant relative, a male, stood up and according to tradition, stood in for the husband and said, come live with me, be my wife, I will care for you. It didn't take her long to realise, however, that the man was more interested in sleeping with her than caring for her, and it didn't last very long. And in that, she had gained a reputation. And in desperation, she found that that was the only way to live. She became like the woman of the well that we are familiar with, You've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your own. She would probably say, I'm doing a little better than the woman at the well. And the one thing she knew in all of this was that those dreams had died. And along with it, any hope that she might have had for the future. She did not anticipate the new day because she knew that the new day was simply going to be the old day repeated. She was trapped. There was no way out. She endured the stares and the whispers and the judgments. She knew what it was to be ostracised. She knew what it was to be a stranger to everybody including even most of the time to herself. She was too young. She hadn't died yet, but in many ways she already had. And then she began to hear some rumours, some gossip. It wasn't unusual to have somebody say, I am the Messiah. It happened almost every week. But the latest claim to that title made an impression over and above those that had gone before. 
She'd heard people speak of this carpenter of all things from Nazareth of all places as one who claimed a special relationship with God, constantly referring to him as father. She heard them speak of the thousands that went out to hear him speak. And they used colourful phrases like the crowds walked on top of each other just to see him. She heard them say, never a man has spoken like this man. He speaks with authority. She heard them laugh when they retold his clashes with the Pharisees, how he had defeated them every time with a few simple words. How he'd often hoisted them on their own petard by quoting scripture. And how he spoke of a God who, in the words of the first song that we sang this morning, loved with open arms. She was used to the idea of a God who did that to her or that with a raised fist. But the idea of a God who would love with open arms. Intriguing. It had been so long since she had felt the love of a father. Or frankly, the genuine love of anyone. And so she joined the crowds. She heard Jesus speak of God who even dressed the lilies of the field. And if he was concerned about them, how much more would he be concerned about you? She heard of a God who even knew if a sparrow fell, who counted the hairs of her head. Now, frankly, folks, on my head, that's not a problem. But she had a luxuriant growth. The concept intrigued her. But the God who set the universe in place and who managed it had time to be obsessed with trivia and a detail such as that. And then she heard him tell stories of things that were lost but were now found. A sheep, a coin, oh, she could understand that one. And even a son who had chosen to go the wrong way had eaten with pigs, had slept around with anyone, but had repented and came home. And there was the father waiting at the gate. There was the father who saw the son coming in the distance, pulled his cloak up, tucked it into his belt and took off down the road. My friends, gentlemen, in Jesus' day did not do that. But apparently the idea that God might do that to this carpenter from Nazareth was nothing unusual. And the strangest thing happened. She began to hope again. She thought she was dead inside, but she began to live again. Do you know what that's like? You've ever sat on a seat somewhat uncomfortably and woken up and you've got pins and needles everywhere and it's absolute agony? Well, that's what she was feeling. But there was a weight lifted as well. Could it be true? Would it be possible to start again? 
Would it be possible to get out of the traps and the ruts that she'd fallen into? Would it be possible to meet God who held his arms open wide? And as she quickly remembered all of this, she could see Jesus reclining at the table, not that far away from her at all. Up until this point, she had been carried by emotion. She had tried to get to Jesus out in the countryside where the crowds were, but she could never quite do it. And she thought, well, if I could get into Simon's house, I would have a chance. She marvelled at the fact that she who normally kept her head down, kept a low profile that put herself in such circumstance. And arriving at Simon's house, there were the double gates from the open courtyard to the street where the guests were coming in. The townsfolk were crowded around it. They were trying to see what was on Simon's table spread there in the courtyard under the trees. What a table, loaded they could almost hear it groaning. It was a symbol of Simon's wealth. Look at the guests arising, everybody who was anybody in town, a symbol of Simon's prestige. And every time a guest arrived, she found herself elbowed to the edge. Until on the edge, she glanced down a little further along the wall and there was the entrance that the servants took, going about their everyday duties. She wondered if she could get in there and discovered to her surprise that the latch had not fully closed. She opened it, pulled it open, went into the corridor between the kitchens and the storerooms. She didn't meet anybody. Another miracle. At the end of that short corridor, she gained access to the edge of the courtyard and she stayed in the shadows and that's where the reality hit her of where she was and what she had done. And that wave of emotion had washed her up there, petrified of what would be next. But then seeing Jesus and remembering why she had come to thank him, yes, to worship him. She remembered why she was there. And even that bottle of perfume, when she looked at it, it was almost as if it said to her, well, what are you going to do with me? <laughs> and, and she looked at it and said, well, I haven't got the foggiest idea, really. But now she had an idea. For there was Jesus stretched out on his side, on the rugs and the cushions at the table, as was the custom. Frankly, I'd think a chair would be more comfortable, but there you go. Minus his sandals, because who is polite eats at the table with sandals on. Just a few steps away. I wonder what it was that caught Simon's attention. I wonder what it was that caused the rumours, the talk around the table to die out in embarrassed silence. Was it those first few steps from the shadows into the light? Was it a body trembling again with emotion 
Was it the tears cascading down from her cheeks? Was it the jaw set with determination? But certainly as she stood at the feet of Jesus, with the light of the lamps strung above the table washing over her, nobody could miss. They could see and hear. They knew who she was. And there was stunned silence. Now, apart from being there, she hadn't actually done anything shocking. But that record wasn't the last. She pulled back the cloak from her hair. She loosened it. She shook her head and it fell over her shoulders, loose, down beyond her waist. The tears that were falling from her eyes had fallen on Jesus' feet. She knelt down. She washed Jesus' feet with her own hair. She kissed them. You say, what was so shocking about that unusual yes? But you see, no woman of any substance, of any morals, would let loose their hair in public. This was an act of intimacy. This was an act of abandonment. This was a privilege that only a husband would see. And if there were any good-hearted souls who gave her the benefit of the doubt when the rumours had circulated, they would have been confirmed as confirming those rumours the moment that her hair fell loose. And then she broke the fragile neck of the alabaster bottle and poured the ointment out and spread it over Jesus' feet. Did she continue wiping them with her hair, kissing them? It would seem so. Some of those around the table thought to themselves, how is Simon going to react? <laughs> they could imagine him erupting in anger, ordering her to be beaten and thrown out into the street. When the few who wondered what was going to happen glanced at his face, again they were somewhat shocked for instead of anger written there, there was the ghost of a smile. They couldn't figure it out. It was as if almost Simon was grateful to her. They couldn't hear what was going through Simon's mind. And in fact, they would have admitted, they would have had no idea if this man really was a prophet, thought Simon to himself, then he would know who was touching him what sort of woman this was. You see, the woman had solved Simon's problem. One of the reasons why Jesus was there, how big it was, we do not know, was that there was some doubt in Simon's mind over Jesus' identity. In some corner of his heart and mind, was he dissatisfied with being a righteous man, knowing that there was still an empty void that was not being filled. What if this man was speaking truth? What if this man was close 
to God. But those questions were now dismissed, for this was certainly no prophet. Simon, let me tell you a story. Tell on, teacher, said Simon. Two men went to a moneylender. One borrowed 500 denarii, 500 days' wages. The other borrowed 50. They didn't have any money to pay him. He cancelled both of their debts. Which one of the two would love him the more? Well, said Simon, pondering this weighty problem, I suppose the one who was forgiven the more. You have judged correctly. Simon, do you see this woman? Cervantes was to Spanish literature and culture what Shakespeare has been to English literature and culture. He was born in 1947. 1947. Oh dear. Would you believe 1547? I was just a few years out. (laughs) He was born the year after Martin Luther died. He grew up knowing the worst of the Spanish Inquisition, the determination to root out heresy, to squash opposition to the church and its teachings. Although in Spain it was more fierce than anywhere else, and it was used as a tool of the king and queen of Spain to enrich themselves by falsely accusing those who they could rob when the courts went against them. It was vicious and cruel in its tortures, in splitting families. The death toll is unknown, but it counted in the tens of thousands over the years that it ran until it was officially drawn to a close in 1820. Cervantes was many things, a soldier, a prisoner of war, a controller of the army gathering the armada against England, an accountant, spent a couple of years in jail because his books weren't always right, although it seems not because of any fault of his. And when under the Inquisition he was accused of having some Jewish blood, he was stripped of all government positions and stripped of everything he owed and spent six years in jail again. He was forced to go back to what he really loved doing, writing, plays, books. And the greatest of those books was The Man of La Mancha, written over two volumes with ten years apart. It is, besides the Bible, the most translated book in the history of literature. It's an extraordinary book. It's multi-layered, convoluted in many ways. Extraordinary comedy, irony, insights into human nature. Tells the story of Don Quixote, a somewhat befuddled, slightly mad minor nobleman 
who thought that he would set things right, stand up for justice, give his life to a quest. Of course, he was slightly bonkers. People never knew how to understand him. But he had this knack of drawing people into his fantasies. He had the knack of them coming out the other side, better people. The Inquisition might see evil where there was none. Don Quixote would see good even if there was none. It was, if you like, an antidote to what was happening around him. Don Quixote called into a rough country inn. He thought it was his castle. His poor broken down horse was certainly no battle horse, but he thought of himself as a knight. He was looking forward to hearing common people talk. And although they never really associated with him, didn't know how to take him. He obviously was of some wealth. He didn't speak like they spoke. And frankly, if they'd been Australians, they would have concluded he was a couple of kangaroos short of the mob. And he sat in a dining hall that night, basked in the warmth of the fellowship of common country people. When the servant girl approached him at the table to take his order. He'd been on a quest, all right, as a knight to find his lady. And as he gazed on this servant girl, he'd found her. Dulciana, Dulciana, my lady, my lady. Well, that stopped all conversation. This was no Dulciana and this was surely no lady. She gained a living any way that she could. And she was also notorious. At first, she thought that this rich, wealthy man, from whom she hoped at least a tip, although a night of comfort wouldn't have gone astray either, she thought that he was mocking her. But she could see nothing in his face except innocence. And she must confess a slight bit of stupidity. She decided to laugh. And the whole room laughed with her when she announced, I am Aldanza. <laughs> I am no lady. It was as if everyone agreed. The tension was cut. He kept calling her Dulciana, my lady. She kept protesting. Firstly embarrassed, then angry. The night was not going how she had hoped. The next morning, Don Quixote is riding away from the inn. And the calm of the morning is shattered by a scream of terror, of fear. He's pretty certain where it comes from. He steers his horse into the field of corn and only a few steps comes across the servant girl, held down on the ground by two men and the third raping her. 
He's off the horse. The cloak is aside. The sword is drawn. The three take one look at this visage about to descend on them. And they take off separate points of the compass. He takes his cloak off. He gets on the ground with her. He gathers her in his arms. He puts his cloak around her. He's whispering into his ear as he's stroking her hair. Dulciana, Dulciana, my lady, my lady. For the moment, she is comforted by the warmth, comforted by the touch of a man who doesn't seem to want to take anything but give. Until again, that phrase drives her mad. She scrambles away from his hold. I am not your lady. I'm not any kind of a lady. I was born in a ditch by the side of the road by a mother who left me there, who had the good sense to leave me crying and hungry. I do not blame her. She had hoped that I had had the good sense to die. And weeping, she runs off. At the end of the story, Don Quixote lies dying. His mind befuddled by illness and fever. He scarcely knows who he is or where he is. And into the room comes this vision in Spanish lace. The most beautiful of women kneels beside the bed, takes a cloth, wipes his brow, kisses his cheek. He draws away from her in confusion. Do you not know me, master, my lord? I am Dulciana, your lady. Simon, do you see this woman? This was not an optometrist question. Simon could see the woman... Do you see this woman? Simon, when I came to your house, you didn't give me water to wash my feet as you should have. But this woman has washed my feet, dried them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting as an honoured guest. This woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't give me a drop of oil on my forehead to anoint me. But this woman has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. Finally, the point of the moneylender story. She loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. I doubt that Simon got the irony of that one. Simon really only saw what she was, 
not who she was. Simon did not see a daughter of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He did not see somebody made in the image of God. He saw somebody made for judgment. My friends, be careful how you view people. When you arrive at the office, do you brush past the person at the door? If they greet you warmly, do you grunt because you haven't had your coffee yet? Whatever your circumstances are, whoever are the little people in your circle, why are they little? You may not have the opportunity to share the good news, but at least you can do is smile and who knows where that will take you. It's so easy, is it not, to write somebody off. The wrong race, the wrong colour, the wrong accent, the wrong background, the wrong social circle. We can find the wrong so easily. But be careful we don't also do it to ourselves. Nobody could love me. There's no hope for me. My wrong is so deeply entrenched, even God really couldn't love me. Many years ago, I had a discussion with a man trapped in a cycle of sin that was despairing him and breaking him. His conclusion was that you couldn't teach an old dog new tricks. I gently reminded him that he wasn't a dog. He was a man made in the image of God and so loved that Jesus should die for him. Don't give up on anyone, even yourself. And Simon also had forgotten the scriptures. He imagined in his self-righteousness that he towered over her instead of being on the same level as her and standing with her. Simon knew the scriptures. He had to know it off by heart to be a Pharisee. He could have quoted Ecclesiastes, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. I'm sure that if Simon read that, he added, except myself. Simon had missed this one too. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Simon would not have ever understood that because God was obligated to treat him well because he obeyed the law. Simon didn't need God's grace. No one who was perfect ever does. Why was the woman there? Oh, we've heard her side of the story. Let me take you into God's study. Let me lead you to the desk where Jesus' diary is open to that day and that hour and let me read out what it says. Meet the woman who will wash your feet with her tears. How long has that been written there? Since time began. 
Last weekend I was in Canberra. I visited the war memorial. I paid my respect to the tomb of the unknown soldier known only to God. We don't know the name of this woman. We have no idea who she was, but she is known only to God. As are you. And that's all that mattered. Like this woman, if you do not know him, seek him openly. Abandon your defences. Honour him. Embrace his forgiveness joyfully. Jesus turned to the woman and said, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Amen.